Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles. Would you please open them to two places, Psalm 119, so Psalm 119 and Luke chapter 5. Psalm 119 is where we'll start and we'll launch off and end in Luke chapter 5 in a Bible study that I've entitled, We Hope in Your Word. Now one of the most famous or favorite passages that I have in the Bible is Joel chapter 2 verse 25 and I'll share it with you. It was given to me very early on as a new believer and it's stuck in my heart and life ever since. God speaking through the prophet Joel says, and I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My great army that I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. God's promise of restoration. That that is the heart of God. God loves to restore, and God loves to rebuild, and God loves to bring together those that have been separated. God loves to rescue and redeem. And when you think of Joel speaking thousands of years ago, the promise to the children of Israel that because of your hard-heartedness and because of your, your disobedience, because of your idolatry, you have found great pain and agony and consequence in your life. But the years that you've lost, God says, I am going to restore to you. I'm going to give you back what has been stolen away because of the sinfulness of your heart is a very encouraging thing to me. Because when I look back at my own personal life, my relationship with God, I see so many years that were wasted and thrown away. And I take my unbelieving years, just like the Bible would have me, all the way back to the womb, that I was born in sin, separate from God. And I walked that path until I was in my early 20s. And then someone, after I got saved, said, no, Ed, you got to understand. I I know, because I used to walk around just like, man, I've wasted my life, wasted my life. I don't know if God could ever use me. And someone came alongside of me and said, no, Ed, I want to show you this, what the Bible says. The Bible says that all the years that you've wasted, God is willing to restore. And that's the work that he does. He restores. Because if God is going to do the work of restoration, then something had to be lost. And you know, for a long time, I made it a big deal in my life. I was looking forward to the day where I could come right here on this stage, stand behind this pulpit or whatever pulpit was here, and be able to say that I had served God one minute, one hour, one day, one week, one month, even one year longer than all the years I threw away to sin. And of course, tragedy struck in our lives, and that day came and went. But I can look back now, and I can say, even to you today, that as I look at my life and I see the entirety of my life, that I've had the privilege of serving God more years than I served the evilness of this world. Why? Because I'm living proof today of Joel chapter 2 verse 25. God indeed can restore to you all that's been lost through your own sinfulness and the consequences of sin that surround you. That's the heart of God. So when we face things that are discouraging, 
when we look out at a world that is travailing and groaning and suffering, suffering at the result of their own sinfulness, we have to remember that we too have a disobedience about us and a hard-heartedness. We too have found ourselves wandering in an exile at times. We too have experienced judgment and loss, pain and sorrow. We too need the rescuing power of God in our lives, looking forward to what he wants to do in restoration. Because when you read through the history of Israel, what you find is, is that the history of the children of Israel, God followers, is filled with failure. That there are many mistakes made, many stumblings, that the history of the children of Israel is not a perfect one. That many, many times, corporately as a nation, they turned their back on God. Many, many times, individually, they chose idolatry and sin over worship and surrender. But it's not just the children of Israel. When, when you open up the Bible and you begin to study church history, that's also very disappointing. I mean, you open up to the book of Acts and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon those that were waiting in one accord. And the Holy Spirit comes and empowers and the Holy Spirit comes and strengthens and they're excited and the promise of God has been fulfilled. Not a chapter or two later do we read in the early church of a great disagreement and a great problem and a great division that was between the widows in the distribution of the goods that were there to help them. And you remember, that division was a racial division right at the get-go of the church. There, there was an accusation and there were finger pointing in the church. And then you fast forward, you read through all the book of Acts, there's all problem after problem after problem. And then you open up to the epistles and you come to 1 Corinthians and you say, what happened? How did it happen so quickly that there was division, there were factions, there were people following this guy, following this guy, following this guy, there was sexual sin in the church, there was anger, frustration, what happened? And I remember taking my first class in Bible school on church history, I'm doing this because they gave me a book this thick to study. It was actually one of two volumes. That was church history one. And as I was reading through church history, Every single generation of the church has faced its own challenges and its own sinful consequences, not unlike the generation in which we live. And yet, the overarching theme of the Bible and why we have hope in the Word of God is because the Word of God reminds us every time you open it of the faithfulness of God. That even in, no listen, especially in the difficulties we bring to the table, that, that we cause, in the difficulties, God is able to redeem, and he does. And God is able to restore, and he does. And God is able to rescue, and he does. And God is able to reconcile and break down the walls of division that are so easily built up between us. God's word brings hope. The restorative, reconciling, forgiving, repairing, building up, edifying work of Jesus Christ is on every page, the heart of God. And you can say that Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission. He came right into the middle of difficulty and sin. You know, that's the heart of God to rescue from the very beginning. 
It didn't start with the Son of Man coming in human flesh. When you read, go all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, and you have the original rebellious sin of Adam and Eve, their flagrant disobedience in the face of God, the choice that they made after that sin was to try to cover it up and run away. To cover it up and run away. And what does God do? God goes after them. Because that's always been his heart. To go after sinful men and sinful women to redeem and rescue us from ourselves and our own bad decisions. Jesus has come on a rescue mission. And that's what we learn as we turn to God's word today. Would you turn over to Psalm 119 with me? Because I looked up this phrase, and, and of all the places that I found it, I love how it's been used in Psalm 119. Jesus came to reach everyone, and that's why the word of God gives me hope. That Jesus came to reach the Jew and the Gentile. He, he came to reach the men and the women. He came to reach the black and the white. He came to reach the rich and the poor, the advantaged and the disadvantaged. There isn't anyone that Jesus didn't come to reach. The, the Bible says, the Bible says that God so loved the what? Say it out loud. God so loved the world. The world is a pretty big word. <laughs> you could replace that word world with everyone. Everyone. And I know it's hard. It's hard to understand the love of God at times because it's much easier just to look out and we have such a bad habit of labeling people so that when we place a label on someone, we don't need to treat them like a neighbor. Because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, Here's, here, you wanna summarize the whole Bible? You wanna summarize God's desire of us? What did he say? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind and what? Love your neighbor. Now, if you can look at someone and not see them as a neighbor, but they are outside of that category, Oh, I love my neighbor, but, but because of what he did, he's not my neighbor. Oh, okay. I'll love my neighbor for sure, but, but because of what she said, not my neighbor. And we are very crafty at times in labeling different behaviors and different people so that we can come out from under our responsibility to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and then allow God to love others through us. It requires an agape love, a love that's otherworldly, a love that comes from God. And you can't help, I don't know, it doesn't matter where you are in the Bible, you can't help but see the love of God. You can't help see how he doesn't quit on you and he doesn't turn his back on us. And so notice in Psalm 119, uh, turn over to verse 49. This is so good. Psalm 119 verse 49 says, remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. Our world has no hope to it. Such fleeting hope it provides. And even as we just sing, I don't know if you notice what song you just sang, but you and I, we just sang together, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Where else is there to give such a sturdy and strong hope? in a culture that is seemingly hopeless. Look at verse 74. Psalm 119 verse 74 says, but those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. Look at verse 81. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope 
in your word. Another way of looking at Psalm, at verse 81 is, my, my soul is, is tired of waiting for you to work, Lord. My soul is weary not seeing the fullness of your work on the earth, God. But I hope in your word. Psalm 119, look at verse 114. In verse 114 it says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. We look out today and we see a very hostile, chaotic culture. You look out today, it doesn't take much to see people clamoring for purpose and identity and crying out for justice and expressing pain and hurt and a whole host of other things. It doesn't take long to look out that, that we live in a culture that is anti-God. And I don't just mean our culture. This is a problem around the world. Most of the world has turned their back on God. Most of the people living on the planet, of the billions and billions of people living on the planet, a very small fraction of the billions living on the planet today are surrendered to Jesus Christ. Most have chosen another way. And it's easy as we're watching the news and listening to things to throw up our hands and say, forget about it. And even kind of in, in that place of going, oh, I just want the rapture to take place now. I just want to be delivered from that. That's a great desire but it's not something that God would have us to escape. He has us in the world to infect and inject and infiltrate this world with the gospel and the good news that things can change. You know, you, th you think of how easy it is to throw our hands like, I can't believe what's happening now. But I wanna remind you that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth in the womb of Mary, he entered into a very hostile, chaotic world not unlike your own. A world filled with injustice, a world filled with pain, a world filled with hypocrisy, a world filled with people that were religious but truly not representing the love of God. Jesus himself entered into a hostile, confused culture because every single generation has been confused and hostile toward God until they repent of their sins. Every single one. And this is how Jesus came. Jot it down, just let it soak in. This is how it's described how he came. He said this, Philippians chapter two, verse five. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Jesus chose the path of humility and service. That's how he chose to reach to the point of self-sacrifice, to the point of death. And he made a conscious choice to serve those that didn't want to be served. And he made a conscious choice to love those that didn't want to be loved. He made a conscious choice to reach out to all people, not just select groups, to all outcasts. And you can say, because of his choice to reach out to the leper, his choice to reach out to women, his choice to reach out to Samaritans, 
his choice to reach out, and I guess you could use that category because the Bible does, to sinners is part of what got him crucified because it was so countercultural. And the church today, God is calling the church back to its roots to be countercultural, to be above the fray, to bringing people to that place of the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, the repentance of sin. You see, Jesus was not afraid to face the issues head on. You could say that Jesus jumped into the mess of sin because sin is very messy. Many of you have a testimony you could share of the mess that sin caused in your own life. It's very messy. There aren't clean lines. It isn't always so easy to discern what's going on because of the brokenness of sin. But Jesus, he stepped right into it. He jumped right into it. He didn't allow it to, he didn't allow fear to hold him back. Now, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 5, because in the mess that Jesus walked into, he walked into a mess of a particular sinner. His name is Levi. Now, you may not know him as Levi. You may know him more as Matthew, the author of the first book in the New Testament. But you see, before, before Matthew ever penned a book of the Bible, he was lost as lost could be. And he was, his life was messy. It says that he was a tax collector. I draw your attention to verse 27. Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 5. If I gave you the wrong book, I don't know if I did. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After these things, it says Jesus went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So I want you to understand something about this guy, Levi. Among the hated and among the despised people in the first century Israel were tax collectors. Not only were they despised and hated, but they were pressed out of everyday life. They were neglected and avoided and talked about and slandered and lies were said about them. And they faced great pain because of the choices that they made. You see, for a tax collector in Israel, they were known as a couple of things. They were known as traitors and thieves. They were known as a traitor because they aligned themselves with the Roman government. And because their employer was the Roman government, they were hated. You see, the Jewish people hated the Roman government. They hated the oppression. They hated being under any authority. They hated their freedoms being taken away from them. So they turned it into an anger and frustration toward the Romans. And they would often be known to, to be out of control and to cause harm and problems for the leaders of the Roman government. Levi, Matthew, he aligned himself with them. He became an agent of Rome, collecting and the despised and ever-rising taxes. You know, if you work for the IRS here today, don't tell us. Because even today, IRS agents are not high on the list of well-respected professions, even though you're doing an important job. Well, you think of the despising that might come to the IRS today, it was a hundred, maybe a thousand times worse for a guy like Matthew. 
He wasn't allowed to be in the temple. He wasn't allowed to be a part of worship. There's a very good chance that his family turned their back on him. There's a very good chance that he felt isolated and alone, being termed a traitor and a thief. A thief. Now, why would he be considered a thief? Well, the way taxes were collected in the first century is that the agents, like Matthew, would be given authority over an area, and they would be responsible to collect what you owed to Rome. So you owed, a, you owed a certain sum to Rome, they would take that, but they were also given authority to get as much as they could from you. So they would take a little bit more or a lot more, depending on your personality type, above and beyond what Rome required. And they would take what was required to Rome and give it to Rome, and they would keep the rest. So you could see they weren't a very popular guy. So when it has Matthew here at his office, doing his job, you have to understand that his job was aligned with robbers, murderers, tax collectors, that's culturally, and then from the religious side of things, they were just worthless, irredeemable sinners. And that was their perspective. Just hopeless. No hope for Matthew. He has chosen his path in life. He's turned against us. He's aligned himself with the government. He's, he's hopeless. Robbers, murderers, tax collectors. But you see, Jesus saw him sitting at the tax office, verse 27, and he spoke to him and he said to him, follow me. The greatest thing that ever happened to Matthew in his life I don't want you to miss this, okay? This is an application for us to grow in. The greatest thing that happened to Matthew in his life happened at the office. It happened at work. See, many times the way that we're kind of ingrained is you really don't like work and you're tired of work and it's oppressive and it's hard. You don't get paid enough and you're just so upset about work. But God is ready to use you at work. And maybe not for you, but for someone else, the greatest day of their life is going to happen in your office your office, and you may be a part of it. I remember in, as a new believer when I was working, I worked in an ambulance industry for many years, and, and I worked as a dispatcher, so I was in the main office, and I interfaced with everyone in the company because they all had to come to the office, always coming to the office, getting their slips and getting their info and coming. They were always there, so I got to interface with all of them. Not only that, we were all young back then, and we spent a lot of time together partying, so we would spend a lot of time after work, before work, on the weekends, on our vacations, doing a lot of stuff together, and then I got saved. And things changed for me. Didn't change for everyone else, but they changed for me. My life radically changed. But I still have people coming in and out, still got all those friends, but now I've got a Bible open on the desk. I've got, I've got commentaries open. I have permission. I could read the Bible when the phones weren't ringing, and so I had. And I remember a lot of people were upset, a lot of people making fun of me, a lot of people calling me names, except for this guy named Joe. And Joe was already a neat guy. Like he was already a real upstanding moral guy, kind of somebody I would look to to pattern my life after because as a husband and as a dad at that time, I didn't have anyone to pattern my life. I was just, I was lost as lost could be. Then I get saved. Joe comes in and what does Joe do when he sees the Bible? He starts asking me questions. Hey, what are you reading? And why are you reading the Bible? And weren't you just such and such two weeks ago? And those kind of conversations came up. And I remember the day I had the privilege of leading Joe in a prayer 
where he surrenders his life to Jesus Christ. The best day of Joe's life happened at that little office that we worked in. And I had the privilege over time to lead a couple more people to the Lord. Uh, most people, you know, it was just seed planting and watering. But for some, I got to be a part of the best day of their life. And it happened at the office. And I want to encourage you, wherever God has placed you, he's placed you so that you might be a part of the best day of someone's life. Right there. And I know it's hard. And I know it's difficult. And I know it's challenging. But like Matthew, here he is. God has changed his life right there. Because you know, nobody really would come to him that wanted to talk to him. I'm sure Matthew was a lonely man. He couldn't be at the synagogue. He couldn't be a welcomed guest. Because of his life choices, he was surrounded by a rough crowd doing a lot of rough things. But maybe, just maybe, this was the day. Maybe, just maybe, he was considering his life. Because that's the thing about people. We don't know their hearts. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, we see their behavior. By the time it comes out in their behavior, it can be very difficult to see and to watch and to hear. But we don't know their hearts. We don't know what's going on when they lay their head down on the pillow. We don't know what's happening, that, that they're crying out for meaning and purpose. And they're wondering what God, what, what's going to happen to their life and what's the direction of their life. And here at this time... Jesus shows up and says, come follow me. And whatever was going on in Matthew, he was ready. Because in verse 28 it says, he left all, rose up, and followed him. Again, this was a complete call to turn your back on everything. And that's what he did. It's one of the reasons why we do uh, open altar calls here. Because many times people will say, oh, Ed, you know, why do you do altar calls? Why do you invite people to come? Hey, because every time you watch Jesus call people to follow him, it was public. And if it's not going to be public here, it's going to be public there. Like your relationship with Jesus Christ is not a private matter. It is a public matter. It is to be shouted from the rooftops of the great work that God has done in your life. So I say, why not start it here? Why not give an opportunity in a public way to commit your life to Jesus Christ, which is I'm going to do in just a few moments. That you're here, you're watching online, you're listening on Grace FM right now, and you're, you're maybe on a radio station that this be broadcast like so many more years later. But God has got your attention right now. He's been speaking to you right now. And you recognize that you are separate from God. Separate, like you're not living for God. You might say you're a Christian, you were growing up in a Christian home, you, you can say you read the Bible, but of everyone that knows you, you know that it's not real. You know that it's just going through the motions. And you know that you don't have a real relationship with God. Well, God says to you today, I love you in all of your current condition. I want you to get up and follow Jesus Christ. And in just a few moments, you're going to have a chance to do just that. But here's an example. Matthew had to visibly show because of his decision that he was turning his life, turning his back on his previous life. And notice what he does next, verse 29. This is so cool. It says, Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. This was probably a going away party. 
You know, it was a feast given in honor of Jesus. I have a new life, Messiah, Savior, dedicating my life. But it would be the last time, really, that any of these folks, it would be like that last time to share the changed life. This is my new life. I'm not collecting taxes anymore. I'm not, I have, I have found what we've been waiting for. <laughs> be the last time these guys would even want to hang out with him. And here he is throwing a party. And I, I love that how Luke kind of says in verse 29, they were tax collectors. We know those are bad people. But then he says, others. Others. Now, that word others is actually a bunch of people like the tax collectors. Outcasts, sinners, not wanting to be connected with God in any way, pretending to be... like. Others, well, we know what it means. We know it wasn't just family and friends. We know that this was a rough crowd because of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse 30. The scribes and the Pharisees, if you want to think of, these would be religious people. These would be people you probably would be friends with. You'd probably trust. Scribes and Pharisees would be in a level of high spiritual leadership. They would be considered today the pastors, the elders of a church. These would be people you respect, people you look up to, people you would follow. And notice what they see. They murmured against the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's who they see. Why do you eat and drink? Why are you hanging out? Why are you in the house of Matthew? Why are you there? Now understand Jesus and the disciples being in the house of Matthew, being in the house with these folks, they're not participating in whatever's going on there that might be sinful. They're not acting like sinners. I think that they're fulfilling what Paul would say later as Paul said, you know what? I'm gonna become all things to all men, why? So that I might win the more. I'm going to adapt my approach. I'm gonna listen and be empathetic so that I might be a tool to be used in their lives. I'm not going to be the scribes and the Pharisees that are pointing the finger and saying, why are you with sinners? What's your problem? What are you doing there? I think today, and this is what's sad, and I pray that it, it's taken in a way that you can take this to the Lord, but I don't think the question today for the church, our church, any church is, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? I think the question has actually become this. Why aren't you? eating with sinners and tax collectors, church? Why aren't you interfacing with people that have never darkened the door of a church? Why aren't you sharing the love of Jesus with your family and your friends? And why aren't we? The church has been put on the earth, as you well know, to scatter throughout society, to be at the office. You have access to people I would never. You'd say, oh, you know, go ahead. You can listen to our pastor. He teaches. They would never turn on the radio, but they listen to you. And you send them a link about, well, you should listen to this Bible study. As soon as they find out it's some pastor guy, they're like, no, I don't have time for that. But you're the pastor guy and the pastor gal in, your, in their life. Why aren't we interfacing more? Why are we so like the scribes and the Pharisees with critical spirits? You know, that's what a critical spirit does. It just finds fault. You know, when you have a critical spirit, you can't see anything positive. Everything is tainted by some hyper-judgmental mindset. And you're forgetting about the grace of God in your life. You see, in Jesus' day, sinners love to be around him. 
They loved to hear from him. The Bible says that even the common people heard him gladly. They came back for more. People loved to eat with him, hang out with him, spend time with him, because he would just love them. He, he would tell them about heaven. That he would talk about his father in heaven. He wouldn't rail on them. He wouldn't preach at them. He would just share the truth in love. And they could feel it. And they could receive it. Oh, it's not that you would ever shy away from the truth. You see, Matthew would have never invited him to his house unless he met Jesus in truth. And he knew he needed a change. He knew he needed to repent. But then there's the scribes and Pharisees, the religious people, the religious people. We want to be careful. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to save souls. He came to rescue us, which he did. He, he came because of his blood to redeem us from ourselves. It says with these guys, but the scribes and the Pharisees murmured. And they asked the question. Then notice Jesus' answer in verse 31. Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well don't need a physician but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you and I are always faced with a choice of how to interface with this culture. Jesus entered into a hostile culture too. And lest you ever forget, the culture that Jesus walked into tortured and crucified him. That was his reward for stepping into the sinful mess of people for reaching out to people that the religious didn't want anything to do with, for sitting down and eating. Remember, in Middle Eastern culture, when you share a meal with someone, that's about as close as you can get to them. You know, they, all the meals were family style. So you'd pass it around, you'd give this, you'd take a piece of the bread, then you'd pass the bread, they'd take a piece, and it, and it was perceived as you were sharing in true fellowship, what we would call today in the New Testament, true koinonia, and you can see over and over again in the New Testament that meals were used as a tool to draw people together. And Jesus wasn't afraid to call sinners his friends. Now, of course, there's the level, there's a balance in the scriptures, no doubt, that evil company corrupts good habits. So you and I, we need to walk into these things wisely and carefully and spiritually for sure. But I find that it's much easier to be critical and to point the finger at things that are obvious. This is when, when, you, when you see the things approach, you see the day approaching, you see, like on, on Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Daniel and we're looking at verse by verse what the Bible has to say about the last days. Just in case, I'm just feeling like, just in case our church didn't understand, I have a responsibility. I'm gonna stand before God one day and I wonder if God, and I've talked through these passages again, but I know the church changes and people come and go. And I want you to know the last days are what they look like right now. I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you to throw your hands up and go, oh my gosh, what's happening? What's happening in our country? What's happening in our culture? What's happening? Exactly what God said would happen. That's what's happening exactly what God said would happen, and what kind of men and women ought we to be as the coming of the Lord draws near. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you see this stuff happening, that this is the time to jump in and love and care everyone that's hurting. Everyone. 
every group that feel, because if you look at it, every one of us, as you're, you're looking at all the, there's this group that's hurting, this group that's hurting, this group that's hurting, like every group is hurting and the gospel ministers to every group. It's the hope that comes from the word of God. As I open the Bible, I can't help but go, you know, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope. Every time I turn the page, oh, I'm in, I'm in the Psalms, there's hope. Oh, there's Isaiah, I, there's hope. Jeremiah, there's hope. Revelation, there's hope. And there was something about Jesus. And by the way, remember, Jesus Christ dwells in you by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to copy him. You just surrender to him. You begin to see people the way he's you. What, what did Paul say? Let this mind be in you, which was in also in Christ Jesus. And that what was his mind? He made decisions to take the place of a servant. He made a decision to take the place of humility. He made the decision to go down, not to try to elevate himself over others. And I've just found that people are not threatened when you come to serve them and care for them. There's not a threatening posture that's taken. No, you know who despised Jesus? Religious people. And may God protect us from becoming religious. Religious, you know, can have a good connotation to it. James would use that word, you know, good religion is ministering to widows and orphans. So religion in itself can be good. It can represent your relationship with God, but it can be very bad. A religious person can be going through the motions and trying to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and forget that they're talking to a person. That what we're seeing is our people. What people need is the gospel, not our opinions. And I wonder if as a, as a I wonder if as the church in salt and light, if we're like the scribes and the Pharisees, when we see something, we're so quick to criticize it. When we see something, we're so quick to throw our opinions in. We'll, we'll welcome the religious people that think like us, but we'll despise the hurting people. And we'll exclude the sick. And we'll walk past those that are on the street, those that are struggling, those that we deem sinners. When in reality, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. There isn't an innocent one among us. We have all failed. We've all fallen short. And many of us gathered together today have experienced the forgiveness of God. I hope and pray that unbelievers can relate to us. That they'll listen to us. I hope they don't see a holier than thou attitude because we think we have it figured out, or we forgot how many years that God has restored into our life. We forgot the restoring, reconciling, rebuilding work of God in our lives that he wants to do in someone else's life, truly, carefully, like a great physician. He comes to take care of sick. He comes to take care of the sick. I pray that there is in us as a church family a Jesus attraction to us because Jesus, people love to be around Jesus. And yet folks like the Pharisees, the self-righteous, they don't have any good news. They're always trying to fix people, change people, mold people into their own image, always looking at the outside. But like Matthew, who would have known that that was the day that he was ready to surrender his life? 
Who would have known that that was the day that he was willing to leave everything that he valued? He built his whole career, his whole life, everything up to that point, he turned his back on. Why? Because the captivating love of Jesus Christ called him. Who would have known that? Nobody, it wasn't like he had a sign on his desk. I'm ready. Somebody asked me to follow Jesus. Would somebody please tell me about it? Nobody knew but God. And so when you shift your thinking about where you work, where you live, you shift your thinking about all the groups that society tries to make you not like and don't like this group and don't like that group and be where, listen, every group is loved by God and every sinner can apply the blood of Jesus Christ upon their lives and be saved. Everyone, including you. And I love this about Jesus. He goes to the party and then he's loving, hanging out with the people, but he's also strongly reminding these leaders. Because you think, what about the religious leaders? You know, those are the only people that Jesus is really strong at. And you know as well as I do, it says later on in the scriptures that many of them also believed. So he wasn't just like super being critical so that he can push them away. He was giving them what they needed. You guys think you have it all right. But I'm telling you, remember in the beginning of Jesus' teaching, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Listen, whatever you've heard said, you want to pay attention, dismiss that to pay attention to what Jesus says. Because he's going to lead you in a countercultural way. And he's going to lead you in a counterintuitive way. He's going to lead you into places and into situations that you may not have ever been in before, but he'll lead you there because he wants to show up there through your life through your care and concern. And I pray that there's an attraction and that as you begin to lose hope and as hope begins to dissipate in your life and you throw up your hands and you go, I can't believe what's happening in our country and in our city and our, I can't believe what's happening and you start to get frustrated and angry yourself. I hope you come back to the word where the psalmist said, I know all this stuff's going on in my life. And remember the psalmist, his name was David. He had his own issues. He had, he had the leader of the, of the country of Israel. He had the king of Israel come after him for years, chase him throughout the deserts for years trying to kill him. He had people betraying him when he became king. He had his own sinful issues with his bad decisions of adultery and murder. Like David, when he writes in the Psalms, he knows, I hope in your word, Lord. Because everything changes around us, but God's word doesn't change. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of your word today. I, I'm so, just the, I, I picture myself in the party with you as you were so captivating to people that were outcasts, people that didn't have a voice, people that were mad, people that were frustrated, people that were afraid. You, they threw you a party, you went to it. Just like I think back to that wedding in Cana. They threw a party, invited you, you came. It, every, it seems like everywhere you were invited, you came. You went. And so as a church, God, may we get back to the attractiveness of the gospel. May we put our fingers down. May we put our guards down and yield ourselves to the restorative, reconciling, redeeming work the rescuing work that you have for us, Jesus. And if you're here today, you've never given your life, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, very similar to Matthew, 
I'm inviting you on behalf of Jesus. Come and follow him. Follow him. The best thing that could ever happen to your life will be in my office, right here, this room. That God is working on your heart. Now, of course, if you're watching online or you're listening on the radio, God sees you and knows where you are as well. See, the beautiful thing about the gospel is it's not restricted to a room or to a place. But that God will reach everyone where his word goes forth. The Bible says that God's word will go out and it won't come back empty. And so for the sake of those of you in the room today, if you're here and you'd say, you know what, that's, that's where I'm at. I, I need to surrender my life and follow Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to invite you right where you are. Would you stand to your feet? I'd like to pray with you. I want you to acknowledge it and let's do it publicly. God bless you. Who else would say, that's me? God bless you over here. God is working even in this room. God has brought you here. Open the doors for this time. That today's the day. God bless you. And I mean that in every sense of that word, that God's blessings be upon your life. That today's the day. God bless you. Is there anyone else? What a joy. What, a, what an honor to be a part of this momentous day. You almost can picture, can't you? You can picture you're just at the desk. Jesus comes by. You've heard about him. You've learned about him. And now you're like, yeah, I'm ready. I want to follow him. Acknowledging anyone online right now or on the radio, God loves you as much. And we don't see you, but the Lord's blessing is upon you as well. God bless you. Yes. So the Bible says this, guys, listen. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we want to help you with that. We want to help you with the confession. And so I'm going to help you. you can, uh, I'm going to give you a, a prayer you can repeat. And don't just repeat it because some pastor's saying it, but let it be a real genuine connection between you and God, a real reconciliation, a real redemption, a real rescue. And you could say something like this. Ready? You could repeat after me. You could say, God... I admit that I've sinned against you. And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, to die for me. And I believe Jesus rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I am answering the call of repentance. And I'm asking you, God, to help me turn away from my sinful past and follow you all the days of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.